You are tuned in to the Now Next podcast, navigating your meaningful now and your meaningful next. My name is Mary Claire. I'm one of your hosts here with Drew Tucker, who's <laughs> going to tell you a little bit more about uh, what we're doing here today. Yeah, so here on the Now Next podcast, we talk about vocation, which we define as any meaningful, life-giving work you do for the world. So any work that you do that gives meaning to others' lives and raises their life to new heights is what we call vocation. And here today, we are with a friend, a Capital graduate, an inspiring artist. Uh, he's cute. Like, there's lots of things <laughs> going on here. So we are here with Cedric Gagle, not Google. That's correct. Not affiliated with Google in any way. That's We'll take that. Except the Google owns YouTube. But Google owns us all, really. That couple of us, really. <laughs> yeah. well, Sponsored by Google. What we're trying to say is, I'm the only person who's not monetized in this conversation, <laughs> and that's that's how we're introing. So anyway, all that is to say, we are talking about vocation, and we're talking about vocation with alumni and current students of Capital University to hear a bit more about where they find meaningful and life-giving work in this world. So, Cedric, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Me too. Came all the way from Rhode Island just right. for this. Did you sing uh, Off on the Road to Rhode Island from Family Guy as you were coming over? I've actually never seen an episode of Family Guy. I'm very proud of you because I've seen Thank way you. too many. So I've seen all the episodes that you didn't have to see. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I did sing a lot, but oddly nothing about Rhode Island. Well, and that's really, that's on me. Well, I think that's probably the only Rhode Island song that actually exists. There's another one. I, I forget what it's called, but there's a song about... Like, the greatest thing from Rhode Island is you, or something? Oh, I believe you. I've never been there. I actually wasn't sure Rhode Island existed until the moment I drove in. And then I was like, oh, look. I mean, I guess blessed are those who believe in it not seeing it. Whatever. <laughs> well, Cedric, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, I'm on a constant journey of trying to figure out who I am, because the very substance of figuring out who you are inherently changes who you are. And so you begin the process of discovering. Have you listened to our podcast? <laughs> Only two episodes. <laughs> no, so I am, uh, my name is Cedric, thank you. Uh, I grew up in Wapakoneta, Ohio, and I went to Capitol and graduated in 2017 with a degree in theater studies and public relations and a minor in English literature. Uh, I'm an actor, a filmmaker, a screenwriter, a YouTuber, and uh, I, I like long walks on the beach. Actually, I don't. I'm not a big walk on the beach fan, but really? I like long walks in the woods. Mm. Big, huge, huge fan of nature. Mm. Uh, very necessary for my faith and my mm. journey. Um, and th those are like the most basic things about me. Do you like beaches just not walking on them or do you just always yeah, prefer Yeah, beaches and I are cool. Like okay. we get along, but it's, I really like like mountains, rivers, mm. Mm. that kind of thing. Got it. Yeah. A little bit less commercialized, I think, is the thing. Like, I, I like mm. to kind of be less more... people, too. That's the thing. I like to be more isolated. Mm -hmm. um, the thing I like about the forest is I, I like feeling inconsequential. Like, I'm really small. Mm. Like, I really don't matter. Mm. And I'm kind of just in this ancient place that I'm not impacting in any way. And I'm... I, for some reason, that sensation like really kind of meets me in a cool place. If this were a session on theology, I'd want to dive into that. Yeah, or if that were a session could. on therapy, I'd want to dive into that. And well, the, the that reason way, I but... like it is because <laughs> when I'm in this inconsequence, like I'm, I'm so small and mm. so young, and I'm mm. gonna be gone long before this. I hope <laughs> the world's on fire. <laughs> but oh, that's a lot of existential dread on Twitter this week. So much. Oh, but I, I like the sensation of being all of that and yet somehow still being deemed worthy of love mm. and still existing mm. within that. And I, I, there's a duality there 
and like a futility to it. And I really love living in that tension. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Just like you. (laughs) I I feel like I need to leave. (laughs) The the greatest blessing for the rest of the world and greatest curse for Cedric and I is that we did not overlap. (laughs) While at Capitol. I can't imagine how that would have gone. (laughs) I mean, we would have had so much fun. Yeah. And it would have just literally burned the rest of it down. I'm not sure that the school would have made it through the year. No. It would have been bad. It would have been. Well, again. Depends on your perspective. But regardless. <laughs> so tell us why you chose Capital. What was it that brought you to this place out of Wapakoneta? Uh, Alicia in the admissions office. Mm. Uh, it was in that my meeting just there. I mean, I like the tour. I like the campus. Mm-hmm. But talking with her, she promised me that this was going to be a place that would meet me where I was. Mm. And that would challenge me and push me while still being a community. Mm-hmm. And given all that I did to end up experiencing, thank God she was right. And and that I just kind of fell in love with with the space through her and just kind of walking the campus after a little bit. It was the only college visit I went on without my parents. They were both working Mm. and I had the day off of school. And I just kind of had the opportunity to, for one of the first times in my life at that point, be by myself in a place. And I just kind of walked. It was winter. It was snowing. And I just kind of went up down to the library and back up through the fountains and just it felt right. It felt like the next place for me. It didn't feel like home, but it felt like a place that could be home. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I am glad I ended up there. So you mentioned a little thing there of, thank God, because of everything that happened while you were there. And so the interviewer in me is like, let's press into that. What, what, what are you leaving out? <laughs> so what did you learn that you weren't expecting while at CAP? Uh, a lot of things. The Probably the most impactful of which was that it's okay to be afraid, mm-hmm. um, which I never wanted to be before that. But when I came here, I, I didn't realize when I started at school that I was like clinically depressed. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that because I'd been at show choir and marching band and I'd had fun and I had friends, but I didn't realize that it was not normal to be like sad all the time and like mm-hmm. living in that. And so... I really, really loved it when I got here. I made a lot of friends immediately and really like felt this sense of community. But the church specifically, not my family, not my parents, but the church instilled a deep fear of, of God. And so I was mm. really terrified of getting in trouble, of doing anything wrong. And most of all, I was afraid of being wrong in what I believed. Mm. What if what I believed was incorrect or what if there would be a challenge to that? And so a month after I got here, I was in a car accident. I was in a car with some friends. We were going to a worship rehearsal and we got rear-ended. And I got a severe concussion and retrograde amnesia. And I don't remember most of the next six months of college. Uh, I probably should not have continued going to classes. But, you know, whatever. Uh, You graduated. I did. I did. And I got all A's and B's except for one C plus. And I will fight that professor if I see them. With my words. (laughs) Uh, Because English, right? Like you you learn to do that on the stage and on paper. Exactly. So I went through all that and, and... I have relationships I don't remember during that period of time that mm. I only know about via Instagram, which is like a horrible feeling wow. of like, <laughs> like people that I know and respect, like a, a person. I was like, oh my, how did that happen? Mm. Um, and so it was really, really troubling with that. And obviously it only served to make my mental health worse. And what I discovered going into my sophomore year, because I was still dealing with the ramifications, that first six months is pretty much all gone, but then the next six months is really spotty and mm. It really messed with my decision making and my way of processing emotions. And so I went to therapy 
which was great. <laughs> so I, was, I started going to therapy and it was really challenging. Um, the Center for Health and Wellness has some, some wonderful services available. Mm -hmm. And I went there and they pushed me and um, let me like really for the first time, like just cry and feel things mm -hmm. and gave me this incredible command of language for my emotions to be able to describe what I was feeling and realize that what I really was at the core was afraid and that what I really was seeking in life above all things was security. Mm. And because my my brain literally wasn't functioning right, I was in a constant place of not having security. And so I started to work through that. And then like two months later, was diagnosed with cancer right after I switched to theater studies to decide to become an actor. And that was kind of the ultimate test of like, are you going to live in fear? And if so, like that, how are you going to be okay with that? And how do you move past fear without delegitimizing the very real things that you're facing that are mm. really scary. Mm -hmm. How do you accept a healthy fear? How do you find what that is? And um, I just learned how, how to work through that through therapy, through um, some key people in my life that, mm. that were around. And uh, it was also a moment of like, is acting going to be the thing? Because mm. that's where my heart was. That's what I loved. I loved telling stories. I loved making films. And when you're faced with the... the cancer was in my elbow and they talked about amputating and when they're like your face like they asked me do you want us to amputate that's the easiest way to deal with this mm. and you know i i said is there anything we can do and they said we will tailor the entire thing around saving your arm for your career if that's what you want mm. and i said yes several years later in 2018 I, I was in beauty and the beast and it was the incredible opportunity to play the beast and my nurse from all my cancer surgeries and everything came to see it mm. and she said i get i get emotional whenever i talk about this but she said whenever i picked up bell to do the lift during the big beauty and the beast song that she just burst into tears because it was this knowledge that everything mm. that they had structured for all the work all the pain all the radiation was for that moment for mm. for me to be able to do that and do what i love and so um you know those two or three people at the james cancer hospital my doctor my nurse my radiation therapist stefan mm. um are the reason that i i have the career i have and so i was really lucky to just be able to lean into my love of acting and storytelling and get to do that after i graduated and wind up here but ultimately that came back to a place of accepting fear because if my drive is security i'm an actor which is like not secure <laughs> like you, i'm here i'm i'm here because i'm filming uh mm -hmm. in the area and then i'm shooting another thing and then i'm shooting another thing and then i go home and then i go somewhere else to do a thing and i don't know what's after that mm -hmm. so you think about it i have four jobs which are incredibly lucky and after mid-october i have no idea mm -hmm. what my future is and that's like my constant state of existence and nothing has been a bigger transformation in my life than my being okay with that versus where i was five six years ago that's amazing just i was wondering if you were going to bring up the reality that security is not inherent in a theater career. No, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> and so can you elaborate on where you find security or what it is that, that makes you access security within yourself or within other things in your life? Yeah. So I think one of the big things with security for me is that realizing security is what you define it as being. So I certainly mm. don't have uh, financial security in mm. that. But I do have security in the knowledge that as long as I am still getting jobs, mm. even if there's a month, two months between, um, and as long as in between that I'm training and I'm memorizing things and I'm, I'm keeping myself ready, mm -hmm. there's a security in being able to do what I love mm -hmm. and being one of the, it's not a common thing. A lot of people don't get to do what they love for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, you can't blame somebody for having to make a tough financial decision to walk away from something they love or 
a medical reason or frankly in, in my industry just not being good enough mm-hmm. is really common mm-hmm. and maybe I'll have to face the music on that someday maybe I'll, mm-hmm. I'll hit the wall where it's like you either have to get a lot better or be happy with where you are and I've hit that wall several times and mm-hmm. forced myself to get better mm-hmm. uh, but maybe someday I'll reach a peak where it's like you can't like you're <laughs> sorry you're not this and how do you find acceptance with that and that's right. I think figuring out how to live in that tension has been that space of security Mm -hmm. and finding that you're okay with the unknown, you know, going to nature for me is, I already Mm -hmm. talked about that a little bit, but like spending time in the natural world is a huge space of security for me because it's just time to think and to process and to talk, whether it's like practicing dialogue for a screenplay or like talking out loud about questions. I don't know the answer to about the nature of the universe or God Mm -hmm. or my faith or whatever it is. Like just a couple hours alone, even driving yesterday, it was 11 and a half hour drive. And I thought about things from like, why does evil exist to the fact that the Appalachians are one of the oldest mountain ranges in the world and how there's no animal fossils in them because they existed before fish mm-hmm. and how incredible that is. And yet we have this perception of America as being a young place because our country is young. Right. And yet the place itself is this incredible spacious. Now, of course we're destroying it, but <laughs> At a pretty rapid rate. Yes. But when you go into those spaces, when you're in the Pocono Mountains, Mm -hmm. or I'm hoping to go uh, when I'm traveling next month, I'm Mm going to be spending a lot of time in rainforests and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And when you're there, it's like, this is an ancient, ancient Mm -hmm. place. And yet I, a not ancient being, am existing at one with it right now. Right. And there's security in that, too, for Mm -hmm. me, of this, Mm -hmm. like, time, like, the world will go on. Right. And, um... Like, we all get to be in this space together. Mm-hmm. I my, love that so much. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, my wife pointed out to me a couple of days ago, she was reading something else about Appalachia and the, the mountain ranges and how, in fact, the same mountain range exists in Europe. Yes. I didn't say that, but I just thought it. And I was like, I right? don't remember where it is. I couldn't remember if it was Europe or Asia. So I was Pangea. like, I don't say it. But yes, literally, the Appalachians <laughs> existed before Pangaea separated. Exactly. And and that that's how old and ancient some of those things are. We look at... Other things that are very old, right? Standing next to a redwood, you're looking at thousands of years, which is ancient. Standing in the Grand Canyon, which is millions of years. Then you think about Appalachia and that mountain range where it exists under an ocean and on multiple continents because it is so old. And that that level of, not of comparison, but of relationship, of connection between the different beings is beautiful. Exactly. Because I start to then think about what dragonflies are like. They, mm. they live for like 24 hours, right? Mm. And so what is a dragonfly's life compared to mine? And what is mine compared to the Appalachians? Right. And how relative is time? And then you start getting it like, that's that was one of the big questions that broke down. That That's what jump-started my deconstruction process, mm. was that I used to be like, the earth is a couple thousand years old and and people want to believe that that's fully theirs. But then I went, well, how arrogant is it of it for me to think that God's day is mine, mm-hmm. that it's got to be 24 hours? Mm-hmm. Like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not even how it works on earth. Like our time changes, <laughs> like days get longer. Like Mars has a totally different day. And if we believe God created the earth, then God created Mars, right? So like... We also have daylight savings. We have daylight savings <laughs> time. Thanks, Ben Franklin. You messed up theology. So it's... it's <laughs> We should have had the turkey as the national symbol, and then he would have left it alone, but here we are. And so I start to then really process this idea that time itself is wildly relative and doesn't Mm. really exist. And there's just this sense of, of, you know, you look at a, a, when I look at scales of like things, world events that happened, and then you match it up with like a, when Jesus was alive. Right. And I'm like, how is that a thing? You know? And so... Mm. 
I start to think about people in New York City right now are living their lives, whether I'm there or not. Right. And people are hiking in, in Yellowstone right now, whether I'm there or not. And mm-hmm. we're all living in a space that's shared, mm-hmm. whether it's at the same time or not. And right. I, I'm just kind of fascinated by that. That's been what I've been thinking about for the last month or so. Mm. Well, you mentioned your faith in the deconstruction process. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is how different people in different traditions, different approaches to religion or spirituality or worldviews make meaning. And so I'm curious how you relate the meaning-making in your faith to the meaning-making you do in your work. How do those things relate to one another? Well, I think one of the key things about, you know, focusing on being an actor first, Mm -hmm. the key aspect of what acting is is understanding your character Mm. and living their life. Mm. And you hold two truths when you do that. The first truth is if I'm in a film and... Uh, the the light is set up in a particular spot and the camera is going to a particular spot and they already know what the focus is going to be. So they have to pull the focus and you have to get there by a particular time by the by the fifth word in your line. So if the sentence is, can you fetch me a drink? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to be there on the word uh. Mm-hmm. Not drink. Mm-hmm. Not me. Mm-hmm. I have to be there on uh. And so I have to get there by uh. And that is the one truth I have to hold in my head is that I have to land there on the word uh, Mm -hmm. looking at the other actor right where the camera's going to see me. And I have to not move my head too much because the frame's pretty tight. And I have to do exactly what I did on the master take, which we shot last week. So Mm -hmm. hopefully I remember what I did. And at the same time, I have to hold in my head, why is he asking for this drink? What's his relationship with the person? What, um... What's he doing later? Does he really want the drink? Uh, is he is he asking for it because he's nervous mm-hmm. or because maybe he's just thirsty? Maybe he's bored. And so what are the ultimate reasons? Was his father uh, someone who struggled with alcohol? Does he have a mm-hmm. weird relationship with it? And so you have to hold these two truths. And I found that that has really had a big impact on my worldview mm-hmm. as, as a person of faith. Mm-hmm. And that you hold, for me, for so long, I held the truths of science and religion separately. Mm. And then I realized, what if they didn't have to be held separately? Mm. What if they actually coincide in a beautiful dance of poetry and math and physics and Mm. all of these incredible creation things? Mm -hmm. And then once I really started digging into that concept of creation, I realized why I feel so compelled to create is because I am created. And so this idea of holding intention to separate truths thing for me was growing up thinking that being LGBTQ was a sin. And that was a thing that I was like hardline on because it had been pounded into me. Mm-hmm. And in college was when I really deconstructed that. And to hold the two truths as being possible in my head was the only way that I could actually see that what I saw in the Bible and what I saw of the world and what I saw in Christ mm-hmm. told me that it not only was it not a sin, but that it's worthy of embracing and including and Mm. loving Mm. and that I had ground to make up Mm. and that I had a debt to pay Mm. to make up for what I had done. Mm. And I had to hold those two truths to actually grasp that, to let the one go. Mm. I had to acknowledge that it for a long time was valid. And that was really painful for me, Mm. let alone for the people that I had talked to during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that's been a big thing for me is kind of approaching it in that, you know, I tend to be maybe a bit more, intellectual in, mm-hmm. in my faith approach, which maybe sounds arrogant. I don't mean I'm smart. I'm not, but that's how I tend to approach it. Right. And then from a filmmaking standpoint, it's all about how you view the world through a lens. I know mm-hmm. you, 
Michael, you know, you know all about this, but <laughs> what lens do you pick? Where the camera's going to be? What angle? Is it high, low? Are you going with a Dutch angle? Are you going to have movement on the shot? How are you placing the actors? What lighting style are you going with? What's the color palette for the whole thing? Mm. Has really started to impact the way I view the world. I see lines everywhere. I see triangles mm. everywhere. I see framing mm. everywhere. And that has shown me the beautiful tapestry of our world, that there are just images everywhere, that art is always a reflection of life, mm. and that we are creating for the same reason as I act, that we are creating because we are attempting to reflect truth. Mm -hmm. And then writing gets into how do I build lives? How do I understand people better? How do I see people's motives even if I disagree with them and try to still love them? Because as a writer, you can't hate your characters. Mm -hmm. You have to know them and justify them. Mm -hmm. And that can be really challenging when they're doing really terrible things. Yeah. So um, I think it's had a huge impact on all that. And then obviously YouTube has been a, a wonderful outlet to just talk about faith in a, in a pretty inclusive and sometimes abstract way mm -hmm. but to just be a presence for people mm -hmm. and sometimes being a presence is just making somebody laugh hopefully not in an inappropriate moment but <laughs> or maybe at a few inappropriate or maybe moments. yeah more more often than not actually but <laughs> i find what you said really interesting in that how you like see god and creation and the work that you do because there's often this stereotype that like the film industry and big Hollywood are like this huge, like godless sort of environment. <laughs> oh, they are. No, I'm That's, That's what and, I love about it. <laughs> um, and like anti-religion and all these things. So we're curious, like what have you found in your experience in that environment? I think I've met fewer than five people that are anti-religious. Mm. I think I've met an enormous number of people that are traumatized by the church. Mm -hmm. um, and that hurts. Because the Jesus that I know and that I love would never have said what they've been told. And what I have to be really careful about is not saving them and not putting it on me to be the... You hear in a lot of evangelical conversations, you may be the only person to ever talk to them about Jesus. And um, that to me is idolatrous of the self. Mm. That you're making a Jesus out of yourself. Mm -hmm. That is, your job is to not, not you, may, you may be the only person to talk to Jesus about them because the way you talked about it might scare them off from having that conversation. Mm -hmm. The thing that I try to approach from it is, you may be the only person to try and fail to reflect Jesus. I love that. Because if I can just like, just like love somebody and maybe never even talk about faith, but I'd rather have them walk away going like, he cared about me or there was something different about him than walking away going, he talked about his faith. Mm -hmm. Well, those are different things. Mm -hmm. You, you want to live it out. And certainly if someone asks about it, I don't walk away from it. I don't shy away from it. But I really hate that I feel this pull in my gut to be like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian. You know, mm -hmm. it's like I hate that I feel that inclination, but that's, you can see them wince. I mean, people have physically reacted, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I'm sure you guys have seen it too, where it's like, I'm almost afraid to say it, not because I'm afraid I'm going to be judged, mm -hmm. but because I hate the idea that they think I'm going to be judging them and that they are entirely justified yeah. in thinking that. That's, and that's why painful. I, I always do like the progressive Christian. I always do it in quotes, too, because I'm like, I hate that, like, we have to have these different categories yeah. in it that, like, yeah. just to be like, we're going to be right. good, <laughs> right. you know, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I try to really talk through a space of telling them that even though I've been a Christian my entire life even though I've worked professionally in ministry mm -hmm. and I've given sermons and I've been a speaker at youth conferences, I'm still figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And anybody that claims to know the full out dead on truth is 
equally idolatrous Mm -hmm. in that. Like I was talking to somebody this morning and I said, I hear so many people talk about what heaven's going to be like. And the minute somebody says that, I'm just like, I, you don't know. <laughs> the Bible says nothing about that. Like, why are we even, why do, why do American Christians have such an obsession with death mm. when all that Jesus really talks about is life? Mm-hmm. Why are we so obsessed with death when Jesus describes himself as the life? And there's also that fear of death, too. Oh, Except for inc- the fact yeah. that, like, in the Bible, death is always accompanied by resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we're just so scared of the death, forgetting that, like, we're still a part of something greater and there's, you know, goodness is going to somehow appear and overcome. Like that's the story of it. Not, well, please join my club because I need to save you so we can go to the sparkly place in the clouds. And I think that there's something (laughs) to be said for like trying to like doing, certainly doing your best Mm -hmm. to follow what Jesus taught and, um, you know, you hear a lot of people get into him saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No right. one can come to the Father except through me. And I personally, I'm, I'm with that. Mm-hmm. I think that that is probably the case. But for me to say <laughs> that that is like, you're going to get there and he's going to go, you believed in me or you didn't. Go one of these ways. Like, no, I can't say that. Right. For me to say that would be for me to be adding on to scripture. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not about to do that. Right. <laughs> I'm not. My, my own scripts aren't very good. I'm not going to try to be adding <laughs> to the Bible here. And, so. like, do we know what it means of no one can come but, like, through me? Like, that, is, that exactly. language is so vague it's and vague. poetic. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, why why are we choosing that there's, like, one meaning for that? Like, exactly. We don't know. We don't know anything. The Enlightenment's actually the reason. <laughs> I have that. such a complicated relationship <laughs> right? with the Enlightenment. That's the most pretentious thing I've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on. Well, so... One of the things that I'm fascinated, there's a, there's a kind of a gravity to this conversation around physics, science, and faith around the idea that the kingdom of heaven is near, but not here, right? Which is that fascinating, by the way, because I'm terrible at science and math. I'm right? so Me too. Bad at that. so that's why we're all together. Right? Like, yeah. That's why we're monetized on YouTube, but all three of us are terrible at math. So. <laughs> <laughs> but there's an author up on my shelf, his name, one of the best names in all of theological history, Wolfhart Pannenberg. Making up zero syllables of that. Wolfhart Pannenberg is his name. And he wrote this book called Theology in the Kingdom of God. Mm. And it's all about this concept of futurity. And his, his idea is that when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near, what he is doing by his presence is bringing that ultimate future that we know nothing about into the present such that heaven is now forever breaking into our present from the time that Jesus becomes human, which means both we have a a taste, a foretaste of that feast to come. We have these metaphors, these symbols, and yet it pales in comparison to whatever that reality will truly be like. Right. And the reason I find that fascinating with the physics conversation is back in the 70s when he's writing this stuff, physics, uh, physics, what are those people called? Um, a physicist? physicist. You were looking at me and I was like, oh, my brother has a master's in this. I better yeah. know the answer. At least, at least you weren't looking at me because I was like, physicians. <laughs> physicists is the word I was looking for. Physicists. There was a, a cadre of physicists that were fascinated with this because it started to connect to these emerging theories that we now know as string and super string theory, yeah. right? That this idea of not necessarily multiple universes, but interconnected realities that are constantly breaking into one another. Right. And I just, who knows if any of that's actually how it works, but finding the connection between how the universe might operate and what Jesus might have meant for me was so encouraging when I was going through my own deconstruction of what, what does Jesus even mean by this, right? Like, how can I trust this? And maybe it's not about 
trust in terms of certainty, but trust in terms of possibility Ooh. and finding that possibility of this is beautiful and it's beautiful enough to follow even if I don't yeah. know it for sure. I love that. Yeah. We have questions. Um, for you though specifically. Uh, so changing the, the whole trajectory here, you are young, you're Am married. Um, you and your spouse have very different careers. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so I'm curious how you balance those different vocations and the vocation of your marriage together. How does that all operate? Yeah, so the the big thing is to realize that all the callings are, are both separate and together, mm-hmm. and they're all valid. Mm-hmm. So wherever you discover that calling, you have to just accept it mm-hmm. and em- embrace it. And so for those listening that don't know, my wife is in seminary. She's going to be a pastor very, very soon, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. That's how we ended up in Rhode Island. She's there on internship for the next year. And um, for me, it's always interesting because growing up, I was told by everybody that I was going to be a pastor. Mm. And they were so close. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to marry one. <laughs> but see, in the church I grew up in, if they said I was going to marry one, it would have been very confusing. Mm. There weren't women pastors. Mm. And certainly I wasn't going to be marrying a man. <laughs> so they would have been like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I don't uh, so, doesn't make sense. Confused. Um, and I, I do want to say that there were very nice, kind people in the church I grew up in. I don't want to mm-hmm. just drop kick that church into oblivion. There were some people that loved me very well as a young man and that the donuts were great. And, mm-hmm. I, and that's that the church complicated was, thing about it. All. That's that's the, there's a nuance to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's a single person that I hold any ill will toward. It's more mm-hmm. the, the power structure mm-hmm. that I grew up in. Uh, anyway, to your question. So my wife's going to be a pastor. And how do you live in the tension of your wife being a pastor while you kiss other people for money? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a really complex question. I'm uh, so glad you said it that way because I wanted to ask that, but it didn't seem appropriate. <laughs> I mean, I like shoot people mm-hmm. and like kiss people and, mm-hmm. and say bad words. and like. I mean, you, you don't you... actually shoot people. Ah, never. Unless no, if we're talking about um, film shooting. Film, that's what and I meant for guns. sure. Right. I don't hire bad people. <laughs> uh, so it, it's, it is really, I mean, how do you deal with that? You hope that people are wise enough to be like, oh, he's working. Mm-hmm. But also like people don't understand what acting really is. Like it's, it's complex. I, I remember having a high schooler come up to me and go, so like, is having a kissing scene? Like, is that like cute? You could tell that he really <laughs> wanted to have a kissing scene. I was like, dude, there's, like, people telling you, like, where to put your lips and, like, people moving lights because they want to catch this little bit of spit on you and, like, it's gross. It's weird. There's 20 people staring at you and you finish it and then they go, that wasn't good enough. You're like, well, what? I, I've been doing this for a while. I, what have I been doing wrong for so long? You're like, no, I have no a one, life. I'm practiced. Why, why did no one tell me? Like, you apparently want more spit? That was a surprise. <laughs> You're just licking your lips. And so it's... It's so weird um, to, to live in that. And then it's interesting then to have a spouse who's a pastor because you see them at home and then mm. you see them in the pulpit and you're like, well, that's different. You know, and it's, <laughs> it, I think that ultimately you get into the idea that people are different in different spaces. Mm-hmm. And when we're at church, you know, at a church where she is in, in some official capacity, I really, I like to take a back seat because, mm. you know, they, they always say with actors, why do you get into acting? And ultimately it's because most of us, as Laurence Olivier once said, have this little voice in the back of our heads going, look at me, look at me. <laughs> uh, even if we don't necessarily like attention, we still have that voice. Mm. And so that's a place where it's n- not me. Like that's mm. not, obviously the focus is on God there, but she's the leader in that space and I can be a leader, but that is, you know, her, her flock. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, I have to figure that out. And in the same way, when she's at a premiere or something, like, she has to, she has to hold that, like, this is a night where they're going to be asking me a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tough to, to be in that. It is really difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm gone for two and a half weeks right now. And then we just moved. And mm-hmm. um, I've had to leave for weeks before. And I'm going to be gone for a month later on. And maybe, I mean, there's a couple things that are coming up that might be a couple months. And that's that was a conversation we had when we first started dating was I told her, like, this is what I do. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's not going away. Mm-hmm. And I'm called to it. Mm-hmm. And when she said, I'm called to ministry, we had to take a hard look at it. Because if you're asking me, we're going to end up in New York. That's where she's going to go to seminary. Mm-hmm. But she felt called to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we had to look at all the options and go, this is the one that fits for mm-hmm. both of us. Mm-hmm. And then with internship, it was, well, there's a spot in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Spot, and there's a couple others. And like, what's the one that's going to work? Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, it's a really tough balancing act. And I think the key to that um, is getting it wrong and then adjusting the scale a little bit mm-hmm. and getting it wrong and, and always being ready with an I'm sorry or with a, you know, I need to do better mm-hmm. or with, with something like that is, is really important. And we did get, we got married young. She had just graduated college. I was a year out. Um, we got married, went on our honeymoon, came back. And two weeks later, I shot a feature length film and then we went to Tanzania. Uh, so it was like <laughs> the first three months. It was like, what happened? <laughs> so we got took a while to actually figure out marriage after that. Mm. And one thing I find that is really amusing is we get a lot of older people that start giving us marriage advice. And mm. I really, what I want to tell them is, you don't know what it's like to be married and young today. Mm-hmm. Mm. What it was in 1970 and 1980, it was difficult, and your advice was really good. Mm-hmm. And it's different now. Mm-hmm. And I don't disagree with that advice, but like you're kind, there's kind of a bit of a wilderness with that right now that young couples are exploring on what it really means in a digital age, mm-hmm. in an age where coronavirus happened, mm-hmm. and what does it all look like? Mm-hmm. And you know, she's a master's student, and I'm an actor, so people are going, "When are you gonna have kids?" <laughs> and we go, "We're trying to pay the bills, guys," <laughs> and I really want to have a dog. Right. But then I leave for two and a half weeks, and then mm-hmm. I come back for a week, and then I leave for a month. Mm-hmm. She's working 50 hours a week, so we can't have a dog, but I want a dog, and I wanted a dog for 12 years. So how do we figure that out? Right. And, and dogs aren't cheap either. Dogs aren't cheap, <laughs> but I love them. And so it's so difficult to work on that, but the ultimate thing you have to do is approach that hand in hand and go, not what are my weaknesses, but what are my areas mm-hmm. of strength, and what are the areas of your strength, and mm-hmm. how can we approach this best together? And that's that's really really difficult and we get it wrong a lot and that's important right i think the the beauty in that is the reminder that one you will fail at your vocation right yeah i mean i'm sure you've experienced failure as an actor i've experienced plenty of failure i mean you don't hear back from 95 percent of the auditions you go to so failure is kind of the right the posture to start with Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you are wrong in that vocation Right. right it means that you have things to learn things to develop ways to grow but failure doesn't necessarily indicate you need to leave that vocation. It means that right. you have ways to develop in that vocation. And I think a key part of that is forgiveness mm-hmm. and being able to forgive whether you made a mistake or like with an audition, mm-hmm. you might be perfect for it. And why didn't they cast you? Oh, it's mm-hmm. so frustrating. And you watch it back. What could I have done better? I don't even ask that question anymore. Mm-hmm. The answer is probably nothing. Mm-hmm. Do I have to forgive the casting person then for not picking me? Well, what if they already had a guy with brown hair and a little bit of stubble that looked like a jerk? Like... <laughs> They probably didn't have space for me. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to forgive anybody. I have to forgive the circumstance right. and then move on. Well, yeah, what? I mean, that's a p- other part of the reality. We we can do our very best, and our very best might not be the right fit. 
yeah. for the situation, whether it's an acting situation or a relationship. These are things that sometimes there are other people who are better fits for things that we might want. And that's a hard thing to live with. Yeah. You know what I really live with in that is after Judas did his thing. There was a spot open on the squad and uh, they needed to fill it. Mm-hmm. I think so much about Joseph Barsabas. Mm. who was the disciple not chosen. Mm -hmm. Matthias fills the final spot. Mm -hmm. And I just think, imagine being Joseph Barsabas. Mm -hmm. You've worked so hard and you've followed Jesus and you've sacrificed everything. And they're like, we need a 12th disciple. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, I've done the things. (laughs) It's me and Matty boy over there. I love Matt. He's great. And then they drew straws. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph Barsabas is left out. And they're like, go to Luthopolis. And he's like, okay. And then we don't know anything else about him. Like, does, does that mean he failed? No. But that doesn't mean his name's going down in history. Right, right. And does that make him a failure? Mm-hmm. No. I have a question that's just a fun question. What roles do you usually get cast in? Like, what, what is jerks. the... Okay. With, with stubble and brown hair? Yeah. A lot of frat boys. Okay. Play a lot of athletes, um, young business executives, and that's because the casting director once said, you look like the kind of guy I warned my daughter about. <laughs> and I would have been hurt by that, but she cast me. And so it's, <laughs> it's just sort of, that's why I try to smile a lot. Cause it's like, I don't, I, people, I walked into Chipotle once and the person there went, you should smile more, which is like never something to say to somebody. Mm-hmm. But I thought it would be like the classic, because like, you know, guys say that all the time because they're sexist pigs. Mm. And they'll be like, because you're prettier. And she was like, because you're scary when you don't. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Uh, so so I, I get cast as a lot of a lot of jerks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird. I kind of fit in a really strange demographic. And part of what I try to do is break that constantly so Mm -hmm. if i'm lucky Mm -hmm. enough to audition for a part that's not in that that's not my type Mm -hmm. that's the one that i try to kill and like Mm -hmm. knock out of the park Mm -hmm. because if i can get that my demo reel is filled with comedy serious stuff drama Mm -hmm. pain broken character stuff like that that most people wouldn't see me based on my headshot as so that i can show them like i can do this Mm -hmm. if you need me to play a chair i can Mm -hmm. like i don't really want to but like if you need a chair i'll play a chair that's the long short answer a lot of jerks I think that's a good reminder for media literacy when you're like watching an actor and they're playing a character that's a jerk and you're like, ugh, they're the worst. You know, that actor could be the one who is um, married and a practicing Christian, like right. in real life. <laughs> I was with my parents in Massachusetts a couple weeks ago. They came up to visit and we went to this uh, this really lovely house. It's uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's house. Oh. Um, so we were there. We just missed the tour by like three minutes. It was the last tour of the day. Uh, and we were talking about the park rangers and they started making Shakespeare jokes. And my dad, filled with pride, goes, you know, this guy may not look like it, but he's an expert at Shakespeare, which is, first of all, incorrect. <laughs> I know a lot about Shakespeare. I'm not an expert. Mm. But what really got me was the park rangers who looked really surprised. Um. They were like, oh, he doesn't look like it. That looks like a guy that knows the entire football roster of the Cincinnati Bengals. And I do. Okay? But we talk it's called versatility. Or I know the 90-man roster. Oh, Get off my porch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... So, yeah, you don't always know, you know, who that person actually is. And maybe that's testament to how good they are as an actor. Mm. 
Yeah. So what I've learned from this conversation is if Cedric doesn't smile, he has a very punchable face. <laughs> Actually, many people would argue that when I do smile, I still have a very punchable face. Since this is audio only, it's up to you all to envision what Cedric looks like. Just Google like. me and then punch your screen. <laughs> yep, that's him. I'll get a new computer for this. Actually, I don't want you to Google Cedric's face. I want you to send in your drawings. Yes. Yes. CFL at capital.edu of what you think Cedric looks like after this podcast interview. <laughs> And if we get three, I will be so thrilled. Yes. <laughs> oh, this is going to be bad. <laughs> well, our final question that we ask everyone at the end of the podcast is, what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid? Anything. Um, mm-hmm. Vocation doesn't have to explicitly be connected to your faith. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, vocation means you're a pastor. Vocation mm-hmm. means you uh, play the organ at the church like Miss Catherine Neuheiser did at Emanuel Lutheran in Lima, Ohio. She's a very sweet woman. She taught me a lot about music, and I love her a lot. Uh, but that was what I thought it was. And as a kid, I wanted to act. That's what I wanted to do. But I remember being like, well, first, nobody, no kid from Wabakan at Ohio can make it as an actor. Um, which Neil Armstrong's is, from there. Yeah, but he went to the moon. He wasn't an actor. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, well I mean, some there's some think. conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe them. I'm just saying. There's some comfort in knowing that no matter how big I ever get, like I could become president of the United States. And I, I mean, when I become president in 2032. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you're an actor. There's a precedent. It's, it's, that's right. You know, <laughs> a precedent for a president. I, it feels very nice when I say it out loud. It's happened before. <laughs> uh, and... Um, no matter how big I ever get, I'll never be the most important person from my three blocks that I grew up in. <laughs> so there's comfort in that. So I, I learned that it doesn't have to be explicitly connected to faith. And it can it, what it really is, and I, this I totally missed. I was like, oh, I want to be an actor for XYZ. I didn't realize that was legit my like heart's calling. Mm-hmm. As a kid watching Gomer Pyle USMC and seeing Jim Neighbors sing The Impossible Dream mm-hmm. and saying, I want to do that. And watching Lucille Ball do the chocolate skit. And Andy Griffith and Opie together. Like, that's what I grew up on. We didn't have cable, so I grew up on these old DVDs and Red Skelton's Variety Hour. And seeing him flip through all these characters. And watching The Sound of Music. And as a kid, being so moved by it. And realizing the power of all that. I I didn't realize that those people were also living out of vocation. Mm. And that's what it actually was, was like your heart's calling. And by doing that, you're glorifying God. Like that's inherently glorifying God. You don't have to do anything else. Mm. You can. (laughs) But like just having the bravery and the tenacity, maybe even to a degree the fear, Mm. to step into that and to lean into it means you're doing your best. And what more is God really going to ask of you than engaging with the beauty and futility of enough? Is there anything you'd like to promote? This is promotion hour now. Yeah. Um, follow Window with a View. It's at Window with a View movie on Instagram and at WWAV Film on Twitter. Follow Forbearance Movie on Facebook and Instagram. Um, you can check out my YouTube channel if you want to learn about how music videos are made and um, why particular shots might matter. And if you uh, want to learn about a really good band called BTS and the world's best singer, his name is Dimash Kundai Bergen. And uh, you can check those out. And uh, What's your YouTube channel? My YouTube is Cedric Gagel. I'm the only me and we're all better for it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can find me there. And uh, social media is a great great place to follow me if you want to see a lot of bad puns that are actually really good thank you very much they're beautiful um and just keep up with me i'm at cedric giggle on all platforms and uh that's c-e-d-r-i-c-g-e-g-e-l 
and um, I'm very lucky to do what I do. So if you want to see what else I'm working on, that's the best spot to keep up to date. Sorry, last thing. Um, if you would like to, it would mean a lot to me if you could get on Amazon Prime or Vudu and watch my movie, Kadia the World Within, which is an indie family fantasy film that we shot here in Columbus, Ohio in 2018 on very little money in 13 days. It stars uh, two-time Emmy and Golden Globe nominee Corbin Burnson from L.A. Law and Psych, as well as Harry Potter's James Phelps, who played Fred Weasley. Uh, he came to Capitol and filmed, which was neat. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was neat. Uh, so I was very, very blessed to be able to shoot that. The actors did a wonderful job, and I learned so much, and I'm very, very proud of the film. And um, I've certainly grown a lot since then, but my heart will always stay with that film as being something that talked about a lot of things that were really important to me. And every so often I get a message from parents that, oh, we watched this movie last night. It was my kid's favorite movie. Or we mm. had a discussion that we've never gotten to have before. Or, I got a call recently from... My father, who happened to meet someone, who he said, oh, you know, my son made this and she it's her favorite movie. And so wow. he said, well, can you talk to this person? She's gushing about how important it was. And that's a reminder that, like, it's not about the numbers mm -hmm. or, you know, X, Y, Z. It's about, like, can you just impact someone? Mm -hmm. And that that's my vocation. And I'm blessed to do that. And so uh, if you want to watch Kadia the World Within on uh, Amazon Prime, that would be great. I really hope you enjoy it. And thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for creating because you're creative. I'm going to remember that, too. <laughs> I probably stole it from somewhere, but it's mine now. That's fine. Thanks to the generous Philip N. Knutson Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministries, Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Your co-hosts are Drew Tucker and Mary Claire Kunkel, as well as your producer, it's me, Mary Claire Kunkel. And our seaworthy theme music is brought to you by Shane Ivers. Thanks for listening.